0: Listener Production. Hello, my name is Jamila Risby, and welcome to this special series of The Weekend Briefing, where I talk to some of my favourite guests, old and new, about a single fascinating subject. Over two months, you've been hearing from singers, writers, models, actors and changemakers on topics as diverse as the interview subject themselves. Today, you'll hear from Sean Kelly on Politics, Sean is a columnist for The Nine Papers and a regular contributor to The Monthly. He was a political advisor to Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. In this special episode, we spoke about politics as a performance, the fracturing of the two-party system, the entrenchments of our attitudes and opinions, and what it means if Australians treat politics as a game. Hey, Sean Kelly, welcome to The Weekend Briefing.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I have wanted to have you in for quite a long time, so I am excited, mostly because we get to talk about politics for a good half an hour, and that does not happen often enough in my life.
1: (laughs) Happens too often in my life, so we'll we'll hit the right balance.
0: (laughs) So take us back for a moment to you as a a young person, as a kid, whenever it might have been, when you first got interested in politics? Because that is, I think, not a usual interest (laughs) for someone when they're young. Well, uh, look, I wasn't that
1: young when I was interested in politics, when I became interested. I remember I was into debating. I I was absolutely a nerd. I was debating at high school and I remember we were set a topic about the Senate. I think it was you should abolish the Senate and uh, we went back for our hours prep. And I, I said to my teammates, um, what's the Senate?
0: <laughs> and this
1: was in year 11, year 12. So... Uh, okay, that's a worry. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, A, our education system needs to improve. Uh, and B, I really didn't know anything. So then I guess I got to university and I be- I don't know, I, I think I fell, fell in with the, the right crowd or perhaps the wrong crowd. And my... Girlfriend early at university was very, very into politics. And so I ended up in a lot of circles talking a lot of politics. And I I didn't know where I stood on various issues for a long time, but through a lot of conversations, uh, I became more and more interested. And I guess I had a strong sense that, I don't know, it was important to do the right thing. Uh, And I had a sense as well that luck was a really big factor in life. Uh, My Mother was from uh, when I was 15, a, a single mother and, and, you know, there were nothing dramatic but enough money troubles to make me see that, uh, you know, life could turn very quickly without much input from yourself and, and you know, that was a, a lesson for us but it was a lesson that I think has much broader implications and I think once you become used to an overriding principle like that, then that makes you start to think about the way the world works. And once you start to think about the way the world works at a large institutional level, I think you inevitably start to think about whether the world should work that way and and whether there are ways that it can change. So I guess all those ideas were in my head in in a very jumbled way. And then I ran a couple of elections at university and something about that horrible uh, manipulative process <laughs> or maybe maybe more grandly something about the democracy of it all appealed to me.
0: You ended up working for two prime ministers, for Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, which meant you got to see the practice of politics up close. How did that stack up against the the ideals of making life better for people and making things work for people in a way that was fair that you had when you were at university?
1: <laughs> well, in both Good and bad ways, uh, you know. I've worked with a lot of people in politics, and I've spoken to a lot of people who, like me, have stopped working in politics at some point. And, and almost to a person, they say, uh, you know, some of them miss it, and some of them would never go back. But pretty much everybody says, "I will probably never have the chance to make that much of a difference on a day-to-day basis that I had while I was working in those jobs." Uh, There is just something very immediate about the impact you can have, and obviously some of that impact can be awful. Uh, I'm not pretending for a second that everything government does is good for people, but some of the changes can be incredibly important in good ways. At that level, absolutely stacked up against the, the idealistic dreams. Then there are the more disillusioning things, and I guess the couple of things that come to mind are A, the enormous compromises you end up making or at least you end up being a part of. And the one that, you know, has really stayed with me very strongly ever since working in politics is is refugee policy. I mean, I I find it very hard to defend almost anything Australia's done over the last couple of decades Uh, and inevitably any of us who worked in government were some part of that. The other really disillusioning thing for me working for... Kevin and then Julia, which were both wonderful experiences in themselves, was uh, the way that ended up degenerating into a fight between individuals and I ended up leaving and and a large part of why I left is because I went to work for the Labor Party and in the end it it felt a little bit too much like, you know, I was working for one individual fighting another individual.
0: Hmm. One of the things that happened during the time you were working at Parliament House in Canberra is that Australia got its first mainstream, freely available 24-hour TV news channel with the advent of ABC24. And I think that's sort of reflective of what was happening to the news cycle at the time in that news kind of sped up and it wasn't something that You know, I remember from my childhood, which is that we sat down on the couch just before 7pm to watch the ABC News and then the 7.30 report. Sometimes if we were into it, we were watching the SBS World News beforehand, but it was an appointment viewing thing when you checked in with the news cycle. Whereas now it almost feels old fashioned to think about a time when we weren't always on when it Mm. came to what was happening in the world around us. Did you notice that change the way politics was done?
1: I noticed the beginnings of the changes. I remember the first time that Twitter really felt like a force in Parliament House. It Mm. was during the 2009 contest over... Kevin Rudd's emissions trading scheme. It was Labor versus Liberal on on that. And then at some point, uh, it became a full-blown leadership contest in the Liberals with Malcolm Turnbull stacking up against Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey. And I remember walking through the press gallery because I was a press secretary, so handling the media. And one of my jobs was walking through the press gallery, which is a special area of Parliament House where all the, the journalists sit. And walking through there and actually having the sense of news breaking around me, people looking at their computers or their phones and seeing a new tweet come through and that changing the landscape. And that was the first time that it happened. Before that, the media cycle was much more measured in its pacing. You would have a very clear schedule throughout the day of when the TV bulletins appeared, uh, the newspapers, of course, and to some extent, the radio bulletins. And then that shifted entirely once Twitter came on the scene. And, and 24-hour broadcasting was a part of that. But look, I, I only got the very beginnings of that. I think by now, there's no going back, of course, but it's become very destructive.
0: Yeah. Do you see any positives to it now when you look around? Or is it all downside?
1: You no, know, there, there is a huge positive in the media diversity that it has encouraged. Now, I don't want to exaggerate it because our media landscape is still insanely concentrated with a few big companies running most of the large newspapers and TV stations. But there is the opportunity to break news elsewhere. There are new players out there uh, in the online world, and they have shifted the landscape. And that also means that some of the bigger players have less power than they used to. And I do think that that's a fundamentally good thing
0: you wrote a book about Scott Morrison's prime ministership and him as as a leader. And one of the things that you refer to in in that book is the fact that his previous career to politics was in marketing. And I think around the world, we've seen a number of leaders whose backgrounds, whose working backgrounds prior to entering parliament have been in journalism or in entertainment or news or uh, even, you know, advising politicians. But Sort of speak to that media cycle and that expertise in telling the story rather than the doing of policy making, let's say. Do you think that's changed the way that politics is played out? Does it just become about a performance or telling a story now?
1: Look, I think it absolutely does. I think it's difficult to get the causation right. You know, as a people, with those backgrounds affecting the way politics has done, or has politics shifted in such a way as to make people with those backgrounds much more likely to succeed? It's probably a little bit of both. I think it is interesting uh, the different careers these people have had and the different impacts that has on the way they play politics. And I don't think I'm the first person to make this observation. You know, Boris Johnson was a journalist, and I think there was real storytelling in the way he approached politics, and he was very good at that. Donald Trump was a reality TV star. And I think for him, it was all about character in a way. He created this character of Donald Trump. I don't mean consciously, but certainly uh, in a very instinctive sense. And Scott Morrison, marketing guy, it was all about images. You know, there was no real sense by the end of, of exactly who Scott Morrison was. It was just a series of images, you know, Scott Morrison washing hair, Scott Morrison on a bike, Scott Morrison in a truck. But, Each of those absolutely goes to this idea of performance. And I think what you've had over the last 50 years in different ways is a shift of politics further and further away from reality and more and more and more towards performance. Now, what I think is interesting and very slightly encouraging is the sense in the last two or three years of a slight shift back towards more boring politicians, you know, like or hate their politics, Joe Biden, not a particularly flashy guy, uh, Anthony Albanese. Not a particularly flashy guy. You know, doesn't um, certainly doesn't talk in slick sound bites. Sometimes you wish he would. And I, I think that's really interesting. It might reflect a little bit of a desire among people to move back towards a time when the gap between politicians and reality was not so large.
0: One of the criticisms of politics in recent years in Australia is that the appetite of politicians for the big reforms, the big structural reforms, Mm. seems to have diminished. What do you put that down to?
1: So many things, Jamila. Uh, I mean, partly it comes back to what we were just talking about, that is the sped up media cycle. It becomes very difficult to maintain a serious conversation in the public sphere. That's partly because of the media cycle. It's partly because our universities have been hollowed out. It's partly because the public service has been hollowed out. Uh, We have fewer public intellectuals. We have less of a sense of serious debate, and that means it is very hard to have the public conversations we need to have to have serious policy enacted. I think the leadership Changes that you had first in the Labor Party and then in the Liberal Party made politicians very, very scared. Uh, now you can trace those back to the media cycle as well in some ways, but the ultimate impact is that politicians are terrified of being rolled by their own party, so they stay away from doing unpopular things, and you can see that in um, the current government's you know openly acknowledged kind of slow and steady approach to things.
0: I find that more depressing than a lot of the already depressing things that exist in in sort of the minutiae of Australian politics. The idea that we can't think big and broad and long-term anymore because of the realities of people trying to stay in power. During the pandemic, we saw government and opposition often in step with one another and we did see big changes, not necessarily long-term changes but very big changes for the immediate term, um, certainly that were unpopular in some cases and yet we saw that a large number of premiers in particular who enacted some of those big changes that impacted people's lives became quite popular as a result and have held on to leadership in some cases as a result. Does that have anything to teach us about what needs to shift for us to get the kind of big thinking happening on issues like climate change?
1: I think there is an appetite among people, among voters, for politicians to take bold decisions. Now, we have to distinguish between two things here. I think there is an abstract desire for those bold decisions. When those decisions are actually announced and their impacts become obvious, Mm. people uh, are often less keen on them. People are are quite resistant to change. But I do still think there is an appetite for for leadership with a capital L. So, yeah, I think there is something our leaders can learn from the pandemic and, and how popular some of those big, bold decisions were. I think in many ways... Our politicians have learnt the wrong lessons from the last 10 years or last 15 years. You know, for example, there is now a view among some in the Labor Party that uh, the mistake of the Rudd-Gillard years was to try to do too much too quickly. I think you could make that argument, but there's a really simple mistake that Labor made. It was to toss out one Prime Minister and then to toss out another Prime Minister. And perhaps if Labor actually had been brave, uh, then... They wouldn't have done that and you wouldn't have had the collapse of of the party at that time. So in some ways I think you could take the exact opposite lessons from the past couple of decades than our politicians have ended up taking. But it suits politicians to take the more cautious lessons because, you know, this is horrible to say, they're, they're fundamentally scared people. You know, once you get power... You do not want to give it up, and you can you can see that in politicians because you always think that a politician is going to step down after a couple of terms, uh, with the very rare exceptions like Jacinda Ardern. They never step down. They will not give up power until it's wrenched from their hands.
0: Oh, you're really bringing my my mojo down <laughs> today, Sean. There's a bit there's a bit of sadness in in, in hearing the, the reality put that succinctly. One of the things that we saw at the last federal election was a bit of a new disruption to the two-party system that we're we're sort of so used to here in Australia, especially with the arrival of the Teal independents. And obviously, there are minor parties and other independents who have been around a whole lot longer. But this felt like there was a real ushering in and a bit of a a shift happening. And we saw a whole lot of people who were loosely working together, though not, you know, operating like a party, so to speak, um, who were elected mostly in seats where long-term, safe Liberal politicians had had held them previously. What have we seen from them since? What kind of impact have they had since the campaign?
1: Look, in in some ways not enough, and I don't think that's down to them. In the in the end, they don't have the balance of power in the parliament. But I'm really intrigued to see what impact they have at the next election. The reason for that is that I think they marshaled a force which is becoming more and more powerful in our politics, and it's the power of impatience. And you can see this in in bad ways. You could see Boris Johnson, for example, his party having created the Brexit problem uh, in England and all of the chaos that went with it then campaigned on the slogan of get Brexit done basically people wanted it over and done with and he won that people want to get on with things I think the teals at the last election were essentially saying you guys haven't got on with climate change you haven't got on with an anti-corruption commission you haven't done enough about women in politics and, and in society let's get on with these things and in some ways the the current government, you know, this slow and steady approach, some people would say it's just slow, some people would say it's steady, uh, I think it leaves the Teals plenty of room to continue pushing that impatience at the next election uh, and I think that could well be the most important thing they do over the next five or ten years is just try to drag the parliament forward a bit more quickly. When other politicians have become more cautious, the Teals could be a little bit of a force for bravery. I don't know for sure that they will be, but I think that is the hope, that is the optimism in the system.
0: I think Australians like to, we like to think of ourselves as sort of, I suppose, a bit relaxed um, about politics, that we're having a bit of fun with, with life and that politics isn't playing too much of a of a role in our daily life. But I, I think if the pandemic shows anything, it's that actually we are a country that are pretty much made up of rule followers, mm. right? Like we're actually quite good at doing what we're told. And so I wonder in the absence of those big debates and those big conversations that we, we were speaking of, is part of the problem that we don't have a direction to follow, that we don't have a solution being spelled out for us. All we've got is another review, another inquiry, another white paper without an actual proposal for genuine shift in how things are already done being put in front of us.
1: I think that's right, Jamila. I think there is a desire for a leader to take a strong stand and uh, to lay down the law of what is necessary. You know, that's that's literally what political leaders do, lay down the law. I think in a way what's really interesting about the current period is this government is trying to shift debate, and that is very difficult for a whole bunch of reasons. It can be really hard to shift the whole political class from thinking along the currents that they're accustomed to thinking along uh, to thinking in entirely new ways. So we've had a debate that has been defined pretty much since the Howard years by industrial relations, by tax, by the idea that the economy is the first and last word in everything, Mm. and obviously all of those things are still important in certain ways. But I think what the pandemic actually demonstrated is that there are all these areas of society which we've neglected, which we haven't thought about properly and which are just as important as the economy as narrow economic considerations, health being a really obvious one, uh, but also how we work as a society, looking after vulnerable people. And you are beginning to see, according to pollsters, a bit of a sense of this coming through from people, the idea that there has actually been a rise in empathy since the pandemic. People used to want to kick down. This this is polling from a company called Redbridge. Now, apparently, they they kind of want to kick up. They're, uh, they're angrier at corporate Australia at big business Mm. making huge profits than they are at, uh, you know, the people they used to call doll bludgers. So I think that's a really interesting shift. And it means that the political debate is broadening. And I think the political debate has to broaden. And so this government, it has to act, of course, but what it seems to be trying to do first is shift the debate. And I, I think this is fascinating because it's actually happening across the world. And this in some ways is a shift away from, buzzword alert, neoliberalism uh, and the ways that Mm -hmm. that narrow focus on the economy controlled the debate for so long. And sometimes it can seem like we've forgotten the pandemic already, but I actually think we're just beginning to see the really long-range effects of that and the ways that that is actually shifting the way we think about culture and society.
0: For the first time, I'm pausing because I'm excited by the possibility of what you've said rather (laughs) than depressed. Um, Do you think that necessarily would require a reversal out of the really entrenched camps that I think we've all fallen into over the last period? And and it's easy to blame social media for everything. It's certainly not wholly responsible. But one of the things that I, I, I do question sometimes is how much if I'm on Well, look, I'm not on Twitter very much anymore, guys. It's not a nice place to be. But if you're on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, wherever you are, that so often you are getting fed information you agree with. And sometimes when I hear about a political view or position or opinion of someone outside that little world that I've curated for myself on my phone, I can have a level of shock and disbelief that means that I'm not really understanding the views of people outside my own little bubble.
1: Yeah, I think this polarisation absolutely needs the shift. Uh, and for that to shift, we need to begin to agree again as a society on the fundamental problems facing us. Mm. And, you know, again, I think we are beginning to get a sense of these things bubbling up. I think not that long ago housing policy was almost untouchable. Yeah. I think it is becoming uh, very doable again because we recognise what a large problem it is and in a way where we're seeing young people begin to pl- have much greater power in politics as well. There was a really interesting column a few days ago by George Meglagina saying, you know, cities are more and more politically important in terms of the votes they control. Cities are more dominated by young people than the regions. We haven't been able to change these intergenerational issues before because older people have had all the political power. But actually, over the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to see younger people have more and more of the political power. And that means these solutions to housing, for example, are suddenly thinkable. And I think those things will change polarisation as a new set of problems begin to become the centre of political debate. And I think that's, you know, really interesting.
0: It's interesting. It's also exciting because, Sean, that means the biggest voting block ends up being millennials like, like you and me and like most of the people listening. So uh, we're going to leave this <laughs> on a high note, my friend, which involves giving our listeners and the two people talking all of the power. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for being on the weekend briefing and unpacking politics in a, in a slightly different way to the, how we usually do.
1: Thanks for having me on. I really hope uh, people listen all the way through so they get the full range of volatile moods on on this podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We ended on a high note, folks. That's it for my conversation with Sean Kelly. You can catch him in the nine papers, the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. You can also buy his book, The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison, at all the good bookstores. That's it for this episode of The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for giving us your company. If you want to get more of The Briefing podcast, the best thing to do is to download the listener app and there you can follow The Briefing and make sure you never miss an episode or you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, can I ask you a favour? If you've got just a moment to leave us a rating or even a review, it would be really, really helpful because it helps more people to find out about the briefing and the weekend briefing. That's it for this week. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.